0: Act one, curtain opens stage right, a bedroom, forest green walls and dark oak furniture, an unmade bed upstage, a man stands downstage facing a dresser and the audience, presumably inspecting himself in a mirror. The man is young but prematurely aged, heavy bags under his eyes and almost completely bold. He examines his hairline in the mirror with a grim expression. He looks as if he's about to cry. He takes a deep breath, puts on his dressing gown and slippers and opens a door stage right. As he does so, the curtain closes stage right and begins to open stage left. A kitchen, slightly lighter green floral wallpaper, dark brown cabinets, windows emitting a soft grey light. In the centre of the kitchen, an empty vase on a table. Next to the table, the sink and the stove. The stove is open. A body protrudes from it. It seems to be a man's body, but the head isn't visible. It's inside the stove. Sound of descending footsteps before the door opens stage right. The balding man enters. He stops when he sees the body. For half a minute, he stands still and stares at it. Then he walks towards the stove, turns it off, and, without bending down to look inside, steps over the body and opens the window. He fans the air for a moment, waves, and forces a smile at someone offstage, passing down the road. He walks back to the stove and feels the kettle, standing directly above the corpse. He puts the kettle on to boil and, as he waits, pulls a loaf from the bread bin. He shakes his head, sighs, and returns it. He shovels some tea into a teapot and adds the boiling water. He waits for it to steep. When it's ready, he pours tea into a mug, adds milk and two sugars, then carefully steps over the body to sit at the table and drink his tea. After he finishes, he washes and rinses his mug, then gets up to leave the room. As he's doing so, he speaks for the first time. Well, father, I'm going to make myself presentable and then I'll ring someone to come and take you away. Sound all right? By the way, what shall I tell them your reason was, father? You don't seem to have left any explanation. What's that? Mum on the subject? Was it me? Shall I present myself as evidence? Kenneth
1: Halliwell, inciting factor. Well, if that's the case, the least I can do is drag a
0: razor over this weak chin you've left me with. What's that, father? Just the wind. The usual silence, well, that's fine. Silence suits you, Father. Stay, put and after my shave, I'll go and tell the world about that naughty little thing you've just done.
2: Kenneth Halliwell, the young man who just found his father dead by his own hand, will take his own life 18 years later. Halliwell's father chose a low profile method for ending his. Apart from an awkward body on the kitchen floor, there was no gunshot to startle anyone. No pools of blood to mop up, no bathtub to drain. Kenneth's suicide, however, would not be quiet. It would shock and horrify and leave questions that still reverberate today.
3: Not long after Kenneth's death that early morning in August 1967, his partner, Joe Orton, who'd been clinging to life for hours, finally joined him on the other side. Joe is Ken's writing collaborator, his flatmate, his boyfriend and his best friend. But unlike Kenneth, who failed as an actor, a writer, and finally as a collage artist, Joe Orton, after emerging from prison in 1962, was a success. At the time of his death, he was one of the most important playwrights in the UK. A transgressive, countercultural force. A voice of the gay liberation movement who terrified conservative England with his play's radical subject matter. Gay sex, violence, incest, death rights. There wasn't a taboo that Orton wouldn't touch. Handsome charming and totally unabashed about his sexuality, Orton was one of the brightest faces of swinging London. And in 1967, at the time of his death, he just sold his second play, Lute, for 100,000 pounds and written a screenplay for the Beatles. Joe Orton died at the very top.
2: It was Joe's success, or depending how you look at it, Kenneth's failure that divided the couple, but death would reunite them. They had different funerals, Joe's was big, Kenneth's very small, but their families decided to mix their ashes before they scattered them. In death, Joe and Kenneth became one.
3: Before introducing myself, I have to confess something to you listeners, to give you a hint about the level of intelligence, or serious lack thereof, of one of this show's co-hosts. Until researching this season and learning more than I'd care to about British gas ovens in the 1940s, I always thought that Sylvia Plath died by sticking her head in a hot oven. A Horrible way to go. I actually remember having nightmares about it. Her hauntingly beautiful face, charred by the heat, the desperation that must have brought her to such a decision, and the likely abuse by her husband, Ted Hughes. The pain in reverse, the mental anguish, the ah, it was just excruciating even to imagine. Then, while researching Hollywell's dad, I stumbled upon a very disturbing forum about suicide methods that detailed how people die when they stick their heads into ovens, and I realized that the oven wasn't lit obviously. Both Plath and Halliwell's father died from gas inhalation. I recall how you, at the very
0: beginning of our last season, talked about what a sick fuck I am, because I like listening to true crime podcasts. But I don't know. Sounds like the sick one here might be
3: you. Fair enough. I'm Corey Eastwood, a bookseller, failing writer, Yankees fan, and sick fuck from New York. And I'm Santiago Alamoan, a bookseller, failing writer,
0: and true crime fan from Buenos Aires, who's less of a sick fuck than you may have been led to
2: believe. And I'm Ramona Stout. I'm not a bookseller. I'm not going to comment on whether or not I'm failing as a writer. And I like to think of myself as not so sick of a fuck. And in case you didn't already know, you're listening to Pen Life, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it.
3: with season two, Crimes of Passion, a look into the lives, literature, and crimes of playwright Joe Orton and his partner Kenneth Halliwell.
2: This time we're all together recording in the Obster Studios in Valencia, Spain, and honestly hoping this season doesn't require too many takes so we can make it to the beach while the sun's still out. Before we start telling this story, I do want you to know that even if you've heard the story of Orton and Halliwell before, you're not likely to have heard this one. It's true.
3: After I began reading about Orton and Hollywell, I noticed that there was a biopic about them and two documentaries, and worried that maybe we'd be beating a dead horse. Forgive the cliché, but not the macabre reference. Joe would appreciate that. But no, somehow, one of the most disturbing parts of the story, which has been hiding in plain sight since the publication of Orton's diaries in 1986, has never really been told.
0: Until now.
3: Yeah. For better or for worse, and okay, probably for worse— You're going to hear it here this season is going to go to some uncomfortable and frankly very ugly places if you're triggered by depictions of violence and sexual abuse this season might not be for you
2: ugly yes and uncomfortable for sure but we also think that the best stories are the complicated ones the ones where the characters don't fit into neat little boxes and while history has definitely placed joe and kenneth into boxes that create convenient narratives built around the usual success-failure-hero-villain tropes, we're going to unpack those boxes and probably make a mess while we're at it.
3: Kenneth Halliwell is destined to be an artist, and a famous or, well, infamous one. He's born on June 23rd, 1926 in a town called Bebbington, about five miles south of Liverpool. His father, a quiet man, straight-laced and rather somber, works as an accountant for a shipbuilding company. In contrast, his mother is a charming, vibrant woman who loves to dote on her only child, Kenneth. But when he's 11 years old, mom is stung by a wasp on her tongue while making breakfast. She chokes to death in front of her son. Kenneth is already a shy, clingy mama's boy, and following her death, he becomes even more introverted and difficult to talk to.
2: He and his father hardly ever speak to one another. They live like complete strangers under the same roof. The creative nonfiction Santi opened this episode with sketches the morning in 1949 when Kenneth comes downstairs for breakfast to find his father dead on the kitchen floor. Now, as anyone would do in that situation, or anyone from my side of the pond would do in that situation, Kenneth turns off the oven, steps over the body and makes himself a cup of tea, obviously. After a cup of tea and a shave, he tells the neighbours what happened. His father leaves no note.
3: Now, your average true crime podcast would detail that bit of information and move on. It obviously hits two important notes. Character development, sets up Kenneth Halliwell to be a disturbed psychopath, and foreshadowing, yes, there's a lot more tragedy to come in this story. And okay, that is definitely one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that here was a young man who'd been taught that because he was gay, he was a deviant and a freak. A deeply traumatized young man who was doing his best to cope with a second grisly and premature death of a parent. In this light, Halliwell looks a lot less like a psychopathic monster in the making, and instead, like someone who deserves our sympathy.
2: So, when Kenneth Halliwell's father died, Kenneth had a shave, and when Joe Wharton's mother died, Joe had a shag. In his diary, he wrote,
1: After I left the funeral, I picked up an Irishman. Pretty baggy. I wasn't going to bother, but he had a place, so I said okay. The place was damp, a smell of dust. He didn't live there, he rented it for sex. There was a table covered in grime, bits of furniture, a huge mantelpiece with broken glass ornaments on it, all dusty. There was a double bed with grayish sheets, He pulled the curtains, which seemed unnecessary, because the windows were so dirty. He had a white body, not in good condition, going to fat. Very good sex, though, surprisingly. The bed had springs which creaked. He sucked my cock. Afterwards, I fucked him. It was difficult to get in, he had a very tight arse. A Catholic upbringing, I expect.
2: Joe Orton's upbringing wasn't Irish Catholic, it was English, mid-20th century, working-class English to be exact, with all the dreary images of belching factories, mushy peas, warm pints, and damp streets that those words convey.
3: Born John Kingsley Orton on January 1st, 1933, Joe spends his early years in a sprawling city council development in Leicester, a drab city in the Midlands. Picture a row of pebble and granite houses, cold and grey in look and feel, yellowing wallpaper retaining the stink of mildew and fried food, houses exactly the same as the next row and the row after that, all offering a barren view of smokestacks, churning out progress above polluted canals. Joe would later refer to it as, quote, a gutter. But in fact, because of all its industry, Leicester in the 30s boasts the highest per capita income of any city in Britain. It's one of the birthplaces of the new consumer class of workers whose bleak, monotonous, and mediocre existences Our model of English
2: conformity. Joe's mum works in a hosiery factory, while his father spends his days watering and weeding for his job as a city gardener. The gardener's salary is meagre, but meagre seems to suit William Orton. From an early age, Joe's opinion of his old man isn't very high. He views him as insignificant in both size. His father weighs only 112 pounds, and substance. He's ambitionless, unaffectionate, and easily pushed about. One of the characters in Joe's 1964 television play, The Good and Faithful Servant, is clearly based on his father. A pathetic old man who's devoted his entire life to his company, and in exchange is rewarded with a toaster, which, of course, promptly breaks. When in 1966, Joe's sister Leone calls to tell him that their father has been hit by a car and fractured his skull, Joey responds, well, that won't make any difference to his brain.
3: His mother is basically the polar opposite of her husband. And she, too, is definitely the inspiration for a few of Joe's women characters, all of whom are unflattering, greedy, petty, and yes, stupid. If that sounds like hatred of women, well, it's because it is. As we'll see, a heavy dose of misogyny runs through Orton's work and his personal life. And according to his sister Leone, a major reason for his contempt for the fair sex was mommy, or as you people say over there, mummy.
2: Alright, if Corey's going to call us you people, I'm going to have to correct this American. who thinks he knows everything about the UK because he's read Dickens and listens to Sleaford mods. Yes, we say mum, but in working class Leicester, as in much of Northern England, a lot of people say mam. Joe only started referring to his mum as mum after he moved to London.
3: Okay, well, mum, mum, ma'am, whatever we call her, she's not a very nice woman. She regularly beats her children and is the type to spend long hours at the pub sipping warm pints while the kids wait outside, occasionally popping in to beg her to come home and feed them. When Joe goes away to school, he sends her numerous letters, and she never bothers to respond. Jesus, what kind of parent does that? Well, Joe's sister Leone put it pithily, quote, She was a cruel bitch, enough to turn any man off women.
2: Joe, as we'll see, inherits his mother's cruel streak. And of equal importance, he inherits her pretensions. She sees herself as being above other people and does her best to live that way. Sadly, she can't afford to, and creditors are always pounding on the Orton's door. But she refuses to admit to being ordinary. And perhaps that's why Joe will later say that he was never able to imagine himself as ordinary.
0: Translation for the younger listeners out there, ordinary was basically the equivalent of today's BASIC.
3: Another good term the Brits use is common, as in common people, immortalised by pulp.
2: They're similar, but common is more rooted in class than ordinary.
0: Yeah, my understanding of ordinary comes from another great pop song by the no longer so great Morrissey. It's used in a not-so-subtle and absolutely caustic way in his 1988 hit, The Ordinary Boys, where he mocks ordinary boys and girls who fit in, and celebrates the freaks who don't.
3: Ah, the good old Maz. Yeah, Morrissey and Orton are cut from the same cloth. Well, Morrissey definitely was a huge fan, at least. While the Smiths were creating their last masterpiece, Strange Ways, Here We Come, Morrissey read Orton's diaries, entitled the disturbing song he wrote about Joe and Kenneth, Death at One's Elbow. The title is taken directly from a passage in the diary, just after Joe's mom's death. Her corpse is still in the living room awaiting burial, and Joe speculates about how miserable it would be to watch TV with death at one's elbow.
2: Anyway, this Morrissey aside aside, the thing you need to remember about Joe's childhood is that he came from a perfect place to rebel against, a place that's supposed to be emblematic of the good life of comfort and progress, though it's actually shit. But things change for Joe in adolescence. He finds the theatre, and that is, in his words, the only thing that elevated life out of the ordinary.
3: Kenneth Halliwell couldn't agree more. Like Joe, the stage calls him. He has absolutely no desire to fit in amongst the ordinary. From the start, Kenneth sees himself as an outsider and an artist. And his first art is acting. As a shy, awkward, and closeted young man, he acts on a daily basis playing the role of different Kenneths trying to find one that the world will admire. The stage frees him from this exhausting experimentation and allows him to be someone else entirely. On stage, this insecure young man becomes a star, and he's determined to ride that star to the top. The place to make it all happen is Radha, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London.
2: At 25, Kenneth applies for a scholarship and is promptly rejected. He chalks it up to age discrimination. He's a good six or seven years older than the average student, but looks ten years older than that. He's already gone bald, and to match his purplish under-eye bags, he wears dark suits with black berets. Very imposing all around. I'm sorry, but isn't that always the problem with student productions?
0: Not so easy to be convincing when you're playing King Lear and your voice has barely changed from puberty. Wouldn't they want an actual old guy? Or at least a guy like Kenneth who looked old?
3: One would think. In any case, they don't want Halliwell enough to give him a scholarship. But after a bit of protest about age discrimination, he gives up the fib about needing a subsidy and just pays for his own tuition. After all, his father didn't just leave him with a loaf in the bread bin. Kenneth got 4,000 pounds inheritance, which, inflation adjusted, is about 155,000 pounds today. With this money, he also buys himself a flat in West Hempstead.
2: Joe, too, sets his sights on RADA as the only place that will help him achieve his dream of being a famous actor. But there are some problems, namely that he has no money and sounds like a commoner from the Midlands. This is a moment in Britain, a very long moment, when a regional accent isn't yet fetishised for its authenticity. A regional accent equals working class, and everyone in theatre and radio and television needs to erase their roots and talk with perfect RP, received pronunciation, if they want to move up the social ladder and enter the chattering classes. The Oxford English Dictionary still defines received pronunciation as the standard form of British English pronunciation based on educated speech in southern England, meaning the accent of the social elite. So to erase any hints of Lester from his voice, he begins taking elocution lessons. His teacher, Madame Rothery, would later say of him, he was just an ordinary, unsophisticated boy. I was quite staggered he wanted to go on the stage, his people were ordinary, working class people. There was no culture, no education.
3: Oof, that's a rough one. Well, Joe's take on Madame Rothery was even better.
1: I don't know why they called her Madame. There was nothing madamish about her at all. She was just an ordinary, pompous, middle class lady.
0: Oh dear Joe, you're so bloody ordinary. I'm sorry, Santiago, but leave Joe alone. It's clearly you who's the ordinary one here. Indeed, yes, though you forget that you spent your entire life
3: lying up at the trough of ordinariness and gorging on it for breakfast. And I think you're both acting common. Well, ordinariness aside, the elocution lessons achieve their stated goal of poshing up Joe's voice. And after practicing tirelessly for his auditions, he's accepted into RADA and given the coveted scholarship that had been denied Kenneth. In May 1951, Joe leaves for RADA in London and does not look back.
2: Exactly a month and a day after starting at RADA, Joe moves in with his friend and fellow student, Kenneth Halliwell. They'll live together for the next 16 years, sharing money, lovers, their writing, and even a jail sentence. They will share everything in fact, except success. Their last flat, 25 Noel Road in Islington, will be where Joe Orton will write all of his famous work and the stage where the drama between Orton and Halliwell will play out and reach its tragic conclusion.
0: August 9th, 1967, final act. Apartment door closed, stage right. A chauffeur approaches and knocks. Mr. Orton, sir, your car's here. Mr. Orton, sir. Mr. Orton? He knocks again, louder, then walks off stage. The stage is dark. A single light illuminates the hallway. Silence. No action on the stage. The stage remains static for just long enough to make the audience shift in their seats. The chauffeur reappears and again knocks. Mr. Orton, sir. I'm here to collect you. Mr. Lewinstein and Mr. Lester are waiting outside. He pounds on the door. Mr. Orton. Sir? The chauffeur waits, pounds, waits and pounds again. He walks off stage, but returns quickly. He kneels down and opens the letterbox. Stage lights left illuminates the apartment within. Kitchenette stage left. Main stage, a tiny desk containing a typewriter. Books, a red binder. Two single beds. Heavy velvet curtains pulled across both windows. Electric heater in the corner. The walls are covered with elaborate collage. Mythical beasts. Renaissance art, tabloid icons. The predominant color is brown. The atmosphere is claustrophobic. Light enters from a gap in the curtains and the dim light in the hallway. Stage lights left. A naked man, bald, lying on his back, center stage. Blood on his face, his head and his hands. In one bed, another man, face down. The sheets soaked dark red, so red it's nearly black. The wall behind him, the collage renaissance crucifix atop a union jack above him, and the ceiling above that are all splattered with blood.
1: Bloody hell.
0: The chauffeur runs off stage. Curtain.
3: next time on Penknife, we'll hear all about the early years Kenneth and Joe spent in that apartment, cut off from society, living hand-to-mouth, as they pursued their dream of becoming great writers. Penknife is created, written,
0: and produced by Corey Eastwood, Ramona Stout, and me, Santiago Lemón. Joe Orton is voiced by Lou Ellis, and a special thanks in this episode to Richard Metcalf, who played Kenneth Halliwell and the chauffeur. Penknife sound design, music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sánchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Guayar Torres. Flor López designed our website, penknifepodcast.com, where you can find a full bibliography of the works we used in researching this season. And a very special thanks to Mr. Ricker Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. If you're liking what you're hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do right now is to rate and review Penknife on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. And if you really like Penknife and want to hear more of it, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. We would hoped season two would be easier and cheaper to make than season one, but telling this story the way we thought it deserved to be told ended up being nearly as time-consuming and even more costly. We'd love to keep making Penknife, but to do so, we really need your help. Even a bowl of mushy peas or two a month would go a long way. And regardless of whether or not you leave us a review or a few bucks, we thank you for listening.